Three, two. Ooh, sorry. <laughs> sorry. <laughs> <laughs> It's an awkward social interaction. Maintain uh, my computer things. Making fun of old people, southern people, or old southern people. Because I'm going to be offended two of those three. The people are here for you, James. I don't like people. All right. All right. About how horrible an adventure I wrote was. Dale, this is a tabletop RPG podcast. I have zero insights on this. James, please take it away. No one knows. Benjamin. Benjamin. Wizards, listen to me. All that and more right now. Oh yeah. All right. Three, two, one. Hello, everybody, and welcome to this week's episode of the Eldritch Lawcast, the number one podcast on all social media apps as they pertain to tabletop RPGs. That's right. On Twitter, on Instagram, on TikTok, they're all talking about the Eldritch Lawcast. Not so much on TikTok. We only got about 200 views on any of the, the shorts that we did. Uh, my name's Ben Byrne, if you didn't already know that, and I am here with Dale Kingsmill, Sean Merwin, James Hake. And James, I have to ask you... You, throughout the years, throughout the social media platforms you have tried, as it pertains specifically to plying your hobby of tabletop RPGs and D&D, which has been your favourite? Which have been the best experiences for you? It's Twitter. Well, so sad. <laughs> Heartbroken. Um, no, it really has been Twitter. Uh, legitimately. Every other social platform. Uh, I'm, I'm not into TikTok. Google Plus was... A little bit before my time, Facebook, I would never even dream of. Uh, and I'm not a YouTuber, though I do sometimes think I would, it would be fun to just stream some casual video game playing and D&D chatting. That's fair. What was it about Twitter specifically? The, the what do they call it? The, the, the town square of the internet at one point? Yeah, sort of. Um, the thing about Twitter at the time I joined, which was like 2015, uh, is that it was really good. Very well. Um, to, 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 was. By, by, by which I mean to say, <laughs> um, Twitter in 2015, 2016, 2017, those first like, yeah, those handful of years, Twitter up until 2020, uh, there was a lot of communication between the broader D&D community there. People like uh, Alpha Stream and Sly Flourish and Sean Merwin and Merrick Blackman and uh, James Intracasso and a whole bunch of other people. Uh, you know, all the critical role people were on there. Chris Perkins was on there. Jeremy Crawford was on there. Uh, so many big names in d you could just kind of sidle up and chat with. Um, and there was a reasonably decent chance that you would get a response and end up having a conversation with someone who in the D&Ds for you really respected and whose mm. in- intelligence you were really interested in picking. Um, mm. And these days, that's not really true anymore. It's why I'm not really so heartbroken that, that Twitter is in kind of dire straits right now, is that all of the things that I really loved about Twitter when I first joined it uh, are either not there or they're there in a significantly sort of reduced capacity these days uh sean do you feel yeah, yes. the same is is twitter your your kind of um tabletop rpg shangri-la is that am i using that term correctly i don't know anyway uh no it's it's okay <laughs> uh i use it i do have people who i follow and who follow me and i chat with regularly but being someone who's been around for for a while before there was this thing called social media uh the the best thing still for me as it was in 20 2001 as it is now is conventions uh going right. to a convention and sitting down listening to someone on a panel and asking them questions and then hitting them up afterward and sharing a game with them and sharing a meal with them and really sitting down and looking someone in the eye and hearing about what they like in games and seeing what they like in games by playing games with them. You know, that's where the real learning is. That's where the real interaction is instead of just broadcasting out into space. Um, Mm. So I will always call conventions and and game days and places where you play in person with someone the best gaming social media there is that's fair that's fair dale kingsmill uh how do you feel about social media with tabletop rpgs where was your stomping ground or is your stomping ground i suppose yeah i mean it's true i feel like uh i should really answer youtube that is sort of my my main platform but i think specifically with regards to tabletop rpgs and D. I think for me, it might be Reddit. I think that, uh, you know, you get a bunch of different uh, 
you know, very individual communities uh, over there that have sort of, they're all so engaged and so interested in, um, you know, the back and forth debate. And yeah, like, look, every social platform has its, you know, it's it's foibles, it's little uh, flaws and tricky bits. But uh, yeah, I don't know. For me, Reddit has been a, a great spot, particularly uh, in the early days of my D&D videos. Um, there, right. There's a lot of sort of um, generosity on Reddit for, for new creators. You know, someone you've never heard of who made an interesting video. If someone shares that on Reddit, Reddit will watch it. They don't, they, they aren't looking for just who is the biggest name. And in fact, I think they kind of have a, a little bit of a bias against the more success. There's a bit of tall puppy syndrome going on on Reddit, but I think that that's great <laughs> for, for up and coming creators, particularly in, uh, in spaces like tabletop RPGs. Yeah. I've always found Reddit to be a little bit impenetrable, uh, to be honest. I just kind of bounce off at each time. Yeah, it's a tricky one, right? Cause because there are all these sort of, um, there's reticate, right? Etiquette of Reddit. And if you accidentally step beyond one of those boundaries without knowing, it, you can feel the wrath uh, a little bit there. I only ended yeah. up getting a Reddit because uh, in my digital media minor, uh, we had to. That was where a lot of our right. assignments were. We literally had to post our assignments to a subreddit for the class. And it sort of, over time, I I developed uh, a love for the place. Reddit makes me think of web forums, which is uh, <laughs> where, where I really got my start. Uh, I loved being on video game forums and the forums at IGN and the official Nintendo forums when they existed and stuff like that. I love the sense of community that grew around who is on a particular board, who posts all the time, who does stuff like that. And I feel like Reddit almost has that feeling but there's something reddit it feels a little bit more anonymous than web forums because you have a name but it's tiny and you don't have an avatar and you don't have like a signature and you don't have all these personalized trappings you get on a classic web forum so you can kind of forget who is who a lot more easily and so the sense of community yeah. i feel is a little bit more dilute it it resists the uh the pull towards celebrity right like it can happen. You can have people who on a specific subreddit become like really well known. It's like, oh, that's that person. And everyone, you know, will wait for them to update or whatever. But for the most part, Reddit really pushes back against that. And it feels much more like you're kind of dropped in sort of an ocean of other anonymous people who are all just sharing their opinion. And I think that that has its merits. I'm not cool enough to be on Reddit and not young enough to be on TikTok. So like my <laughs> early tabletop RPG stomping ground was Facebook and getting into Facebook groups, which is how I found the group that I play D&D with regularly. And you can find specific interest groups around painting miniatures or, you know, whatever it happens to be, which kind of seems like the the evolution of Facebook from being this very like you'd go to somebody's Facebook page and you'd... um. You know, that that was kind of what it was all about was learning about other people kind of in the opposite inverse way of Reddit is about just, you know, discussing the topic. Facebook used to be about discovering the people where there is I feel like it's evolved a little bit away from that now, um, particularly because there's only people who are 30 years plus still using Facebook generally. Um, but anyway, like moving 30 on. Years old. Speak, <laughs> speaking of me. Um, <laughs> how much of the social media as we move forward through the iterations of it does it become more noise than signal does it become more performative than content driven and how much actual learning or communication can you do when you're talking past people who are either performing or there to watch the performance rather than to engage with the content. And as a role-playing game, how much does that not transfer to being a role-playing game where communication is so important, but so is performance? Tell me a little bit more about what you mean by performance before you jump in. P performative. Like on TikTok, you're not discussing things with people, right? You're mm. not you're not learning about something. You even role playing game stuff, you get a two minute or two minute, 20 second uh, spurt of information, but you don't get to ask questions. Now, you probably can. I'm not on TikTok. I don't know, but you probably can. But how how much can you actually get out of that? Is It seems to be all in one direction. It's more advertising than it is communicating. 
even the communicative stuff is performative uh, because you can ask questions in the comments and sometimes the TikTok person will make a video in response to it. But even that does feel like the sort of performative aspect of it. Sorry, I talked right yeah. over you. Keep going, Sean. <laughs> no, no, that's that you said what I what I meant. I mean, I think back to my start, which was hold your hold your hats. Um, <laughs> Yahoo groups. So I belong to about 50 Yahoo groups and I met so many people that I could communicate to directly. Uh, Teos Abadia, Alpha Stream. The -hmm. first communication I had with him was he was complaining about something in Living Greyhawk. I can't, you know, Teos complaining, I don't believe it, but yes, he was. (laughs) And so I had the chance to explain to him why this was how it was for these reasons. And I could list out the reasons and I could do it to him privately. So it wasn't this trying to one up each other. And once I got to explain it, he understood. And then he could go and explain it to other people who he was in that echo chamber of why is this so bad? And, and we could, we could actually, you know, teach, uh, Merrick Blackman, the same thing he put out on EN world, which is sort of a forum about how horrible an adventure I wrote was. And so I could go to him, I could go to him, and he was right, and I could go to him and say, these are the reasons why this adventure was so bad. You are absolutely correct. Now let me tell you why, so we can learn together about how these different things that go into game design came up in this adventure. Do you remember what adventure that was, Sean? I do, yeah, but we I'm want not to know going the to say one. it. I'm not going to say it because I was a co-author on it, uh, um, so I, I don't want to uh, throw anybody under any bus. I fair live under the bus, but I don't want to throw anyone else under it. Fair <laughs> it will come up in a question that we have later in this episode. <laughs> okay. Everyone gets okay. their detective notepads out. Yes. It's easy to believe that new media is is creating this performative sort of quality but i think that that performance is present regardless i think i think that 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 it just becomes more obvious to us because certain algorithms will encourage certain types of performance so we see it more often right so on twitter you can get a lot of um traction on a tweet about dnd if you make it a hot take. You know what I mean? And it doesn't have to be well thought out and it doesn't have to be well defended. Um, people will kind of, I've accidentally tweeted hot takes. I didn't think they were hot takes. And then people misunderstood what I was saying. And then those tweets got lots of likes because people were like, yeah, I also am outraged. And you know, it's just fascinating to see it at work. Um, because I, I do think that the the way that certain algorithms for different uh, websites are constructed, it just kind of pushes a specific type of performance to the front and makes us aware of it um, where we maybe wouldn't be otherwise. Just a thought. I don't know. Jay Pizza Beat in chats. Jay Pizza Beats in chat says any platform of sharing or voting is going to attract some level of performative content. And that's very true. Uh, people as social animals like the uh, approval and attention of other people. And to a certain degree, I think that performative content can be a good thing because it kind of gives rise to the culture of a platform. Um, Twitter has a different culture from Tumblr. It's a different culture from Reddit. It's a different culture from Facebook. And that will help you find the type of platform that you want to be on. Um, even if <laughs> uh, Twitter is so big that its culture is kind of diffuse over a lot of different fields, the fact that uh, there is a culture around, say, the size of the content you make or the, the types of posts that you make. Right now, you know, there's a culture of, impersonating Elon Musk right now, because that's the (laughs) meme that's running through Twitter. But there's also those other memes that run through Twitter. And whether you think they're funny or insipid or funny and then insipid, uh, I personally can't see that image of the guy from Tangled with a million swords in front of him without wanting to turn off my computer um, for a post your hottest take that will get people like this. Go away. Can I block that image, please? Can I can I word filter that image? Um, but that's that's sort of thing that happens on that platform. That do, that doesn't really happen on Reddit, uh, and that performance is 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 good. Actually, is my hot take. Yeah, I mean, somebody described it in a TEDx talk. 
specifically. Um, I think this was Patrick Klepik, who's a video game uh, mm. journalist. Um, and he was talking about how, uh, was this Patrick talking about this? Or maybe this was Drew, um, who's the blinking white guy. Um, I think it was Drew <laughs> Scanlon. They worked at the same company, uh, which was called Giant Bomb, controversially enough, which is a video game website. Anyway, this didn't mean to turn into a, an advertisement for them. Drew Scanlon, who became the blinking white guy meme GIF thing, um, he talked about how, you know, things like uh, memes and, um, uh, you know, GIFs and things are kind of body language through digital media, mm. right? And they become insipid uh, if the same ones are repeated again and again and again, but they're like, they're repeated again and again and again because there is a communal kind of um, feel to them that everybody, you know, seems to to relate to that specific thing. This is what it feels like when you get a good hot take is, you know, 70 people uh, uh, threatening you with swords, apparently. And um, then- you get a little bit of celebrity when you come up with a variation on that that's minor sure, enough yeah, yeah, yeah. to feel familiar but different enough to feel like you're actually kind of cool and not being like all the other guys. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I mean, I think the the trick with social media is finding that balance between performance and discussion you know somebody i can't remember who it was i'm sorry uh mentioned in our chat just before that you know much like this podcast it is both a discussion and a performance right because uh there is a level there is a veneer of like we are talking about this now because it's what was written on the run sheet and we think it would be an interesting topic for other people to discuss but before we were recording we were talking about cyberpunk 2077 and and the nature of Cyberpunk, which was an interesting discussion in and of itself. Um, the point being, finding that that you know hot take that uh, feels genuine. You know, trying to find those 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 performative, those clickbaity things that are content. Pardon me, as well, because if it's too contenty, it. it kind of won't be discovered and if it's too clickbaity then it's insipid and boring and trying to serve the community i think is trying to find the balance between those two things which is what i felt twitter uh, kind of was a lot isn't it interesting though the way that that wraps back around to the this performative thing that sean is talking about right so so you've got that thing of I am outraged by this or this is my hot take and it it is um deliberately meant to uh, give the impression of honesty and and sort of a, a genuine insight into me as an individual person. Here's mm. my feelings about this thing. Um, mm. And then also you, you see it in another place. I'm seeing sort of, you know, this rise on YouTube of um, for a long time, there were people making really casual videos who part of the signal that it was someone just at home who's a fan making a like a like a master edit of all the time so-and-so says this, right? And they would just make the title all lowercase because they couldn't be bothered, right? That was one of the signals that this is just a super casual video. But they got really popular because fans love that kind of content. And so the algorithm started liking those videos and it would share them with you. And now I'm seeing huge creators with massive companies at their backs trying that out. Let's also make titles that are really casual, full, long sentences that are all in lowercase because it gives the impression that we're just casual. This is just us hanging out in our sweatpants. And it's like, right, but you're not though. You're a corporation and you're just mimicking it. And and so that it does, it wraps back around. It starts out as this sort of, um, this, this cultural element of just like, hey, this is a thing that I care about. Here is my genuine opinion. And as it sort of gains this momentum, it comes all the way back around to the most performative of all. Yeah, oh. yeah. I do fear this with D&D sometimes. Remember, we're a D&D podcast. Um, because- oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, right. <laughs> oh, yeah, right. Okay, sorry, yes. <laughs> uh, is that um, there's a, like what you're talking about, Dale, the ultimate death of any meme is when it's, used in advertising. <laughs> yeah. It it is birthed on like Twitter or Reddit or something awful and then it eventually reaches its old age in Facebook and then it is dead and buried and in the ground once an advertiser 
starts using it in their marketing, then you know there is no hope for it. Just and so really, I kind of have, go ahead. No, I was just going to complain very specifically. I don't know whether you have them in the US. We have these KFC ads here that always say, shut up and take my money, but they uh, clearly don't even understand the meme. They don't, they, they just say it with the, the strangest tone of voice. It never fits the conversation. And w- they clearly saw a meme and thought that's popular. Let's put yeah. that in all the ads. Yeah, Let's be no, relatable. We don't have that one specifically, but we have many like it. <laughs> and so I have this fear that D&D is, you know, it's got this sort of cultural grassroots cachet, you know, even though it's being produced by a big company. I, I see this sometimes when D&D posts on like Instagram or something because they follow Instagram culture. They want to fit in, but it never, never quite it's always very, how do you do, fellow kids, speaking of means that I'm sure a company <laughs> will use at some point. Um, but it, it feels just like that. Uh, and I, I, I fear that D&D's sort of cultural coolness uh, will very rapidly slip into that bucket and sort of become so cool it's uncool again. Yeah, it'll happen. That's the cycle. Maybe. I feel like that's a that's a misstep that like Hasbro or Wizards themselves needs to make. I don't know if that will necessarily uh, come from the community. I feel like that's going to come from somewhere like Stranger Things or <laughs> Honor Among Thieves, you know, just some, they'll post some meme about, lol, when such and such rolled a natural one in the movie and it's like a gif of them getting like slammed by a monster or, or something and it's like, uh, yeah, unfun. Mm-hmm. Um We've gotten through a lot of this conversation uh, without setting up the context for it, uh, which I really should have done at the top. But I just for if anybody in the chat or listening to this doesn't know, if you're not on Twitter, um, the reason that this conversation is pertinent to tabletop RPGs in particular is that it's no secret Twitter has been purchased by Elon Musk, um, uh, the world's most loved or hated billionaire, depending on your um, point of view. Uh, and uh, there have been some sweeping changes. Uh, just doing a quick reporting of the facts on the ground. Uh, last week, 50% of Twitter's global workforce has been fired in what the workers were calling internally the snap, uh, which I thought was <laughs> hilarious when I read that. Uh, This includes the accessibility team. I can't remember the name of the gentleman who tweeted about this, but uh, saying that uh, the accessibility team has been taken out. That that was the team that uh, uh, had alt text kind of introduced um, and the alt badge introduced to images, among many other uh, changes. Uh, And there's also been a massive incline of hate speech since Elon took over. That's... An interesting one only because uh, there's probably some level of that that are like people seeing what they can get away with, you know, um, Mm. uh, uh, and seeing if they will get banned for that sort of thing. And then uh, (laughs) Elon very publicly like bartering with Stephen King uh, over what uh, the new blue check cost would be. So, again, a little bit of background. I'm sure most people will be aware that if you've got a little blue uh, tick next to your name on Twitter, this means that you are the person that you are reported to be. Um, You know, Stephen King is the author. Stephen King, if he has the little blue tick, it's not somebody impersonating or a parody account or something like that. Um, And uh, that has been changed. My understanding was that you needed to, like, send in some form of ID to get this verified that this account belonged to you. I'm not sure what the verification steps were. James, you you seem to have an idea. Yeah. Um, No one knows is how Twitter verification works. You will submit, and through an arcane and opaque process, <laughs> they will say you are verified or you are not verified. And there is there is quite a period in the past, like two or three years, where people who very, very truly should be verified. I think about Gail Simone, the comics writer who's known for trolling her audience, who remains unverified. Um, when, you know, she is a public figure, she is an author, she is a writer, she is a significant figure on Twitter, just because of speaking of the culture of that platform, Gail Simone's trolling is a part of the Twitter culture a little bit. Mm. Um, and you know, she remains unverified, uh, in our community, uh, performer B Dave Walters has submitted about a dozen times for verification. And even though he's got a bunch of videos up, even though he has, you know, he he has a D&D comic with a writer's credit right on the cover, you know, he's not verified. There was a campaign to get Performer Critical Bard verified 
uh, and and it worked somehow, but only by sort of creating a hashtag and publicly pressuring Twitter. Uh, uh, hyphen Hedgehog says roll a charisma provision check for blue check mark, and like yes, literally that's what it is. There is no sort of procedural wisdom here. Uh, it's just kind of if Twitter likes you, I guess. <laughs> I do think that Ben might be correct in saying that you do have to send some form of ID at some point in the pro or at least that you used to because I do remember there being a stage where anyone who uses a stage name or or a you know you know a, a pen name something like that that isn't the one on their ID I remember there being an era where they were having a lot of trouble getting right. verified uh, check marks so I think mm. them them that might have been correct also that might be a component of it yeah well I, never I've never attempted to get verified because I know it's such a <laughs> such a mind shaft of despair yeah. I've never even I don't well, it doesn't matter now anyway, because Elon fired the div- diviners that were uh, determining who uh, was worthy of verification or not. And now, uh, as they said in the chat, uh, it started at $20 and then Stephen King, champion of the people, bartered it down to $8, uh, which just goes to show Elon's management style, I suppose. Just ask he, the people. He did also barter Garfield the cat down to $5, uh, <laughs> in case you missed that. So we can thank if it does go down to five, we can thank Garfield. Now, now this Garfield bit actually clicks into another interesting aspect of this fiasco because that was not an official Garfield account. If you look at the ad, that was just someone <laughs> who That's changed just- their screen name and avatar to be Garfield the Cat to mm-hmm. imitate the official Garfield account to kind of dunk on Elon. Um, right. And this is an indicative of the sort of implosion, cultural implosion that Twitter is having right now where everyone with the blue check mark wants to be in on the joke. Well, the thing is that like once this comes into effect and I believe it might have come into effect today or or yesterday depending on where you are in the world where it's it's Twitter blue, it's like YouTube's red version of that but it's for Twitter. Uh the extra things that it gets you is very let's say vague and evocative. Uh, <laughs> but one of the things it definitely gets you is a blue check mark no matter who you are. There's no verification step. Like multiple people can be claiming to be the same person. And if they're all paying their $8 or their $5, they're all verified as being that person. That's my understanding of the facts as I have read. Um, And so therefore, uh, uh, you know, there's no way to verify who is who on Twitter anymore if this comes into uh, effect the way that it appears to be doing. Yeah. so Twitter's a dumpster fire, basically, at the moment. It's troubling for a lot of reasons. So the reason, by the way, our, our dear listeners, the reason that we're talking about this is that it does uh, play a significant role in um, creators within you know, yeah. any space, but particularly to our interests, uh, the D&D and tabletop RPG space. If you are a creator, um, an independent creator online, you, you need a Twitter account. <laughs> This mm-hmm. is this is something that I mean very um, sort of sell out of me, I suppose. But again, digital media minor. Um, when I when we were at PAX and I was talking to lots of people, and you know the the subject of of networking came up, I was like, you you need a Twitter account. You need to be able to be found after you meet someone at a convention and you have a, have this great conversation, you make a good impression, they have to be able to find you online. Mm-hmm. Um, and the first place that they're going to check is Twitter. It is, it is this hub of stuff. And then it becomes a really important place. It's, it's, it's scary as a, as a person who, you know, my thing is that I make YouTube videos, right? And yeah, YouTube is my, my main hub of stuff. But for example, I mean, if you're a if you're a Twitch streamer who's just getting sort of started and uh, you don't already have one of the most recognizable names on Twitch, this is gonna kill Twitch's um, growth. It's it's gonna kill it because the only people who are going to to see a Twitch stream when it starts are gonna be the people who are already spending all of their time on Twitch. So mm. anyone who comes in from Twitter, I'm saying it will. It's if if things collapse, and I actually don't think that they will collapse. I think that it's just going to become a tangled mess of um, difficult to use features. But uh, you know, there's all this talk about moving to another platform, and I just don't think that that's actually going to happen. Yeah. Um, lots of people have thought that that sort of thing will happen in the past, but it is incredibly, incredibly difficult.
difficult to unseat a um, social media platform that has situated itself and, and really sort of grown roots. Um, it's, you know, it's the same reason that Snapchat, while it technically still exists, it starts to to fade because the minute that Instagram that has its roots set more than Snapchat does starts doing the same thing Snapchat did, everyone's just going to use Instagram because they're already on it. You know, I, I firmly believe that TikTok is eventually going to start to fade because YouTube is doing the same thing and uh, Instagram is doing the same thing as TikTok. Those those are two monoliths that are going to make it really difficult for an even a very successful new platform like TikTok to really hold on because there's just a bigger audience who are already using those other platforms for things anyway. People are already spending all their time on YouTube anyway. So at a certain point, it's just going to be hard to, to keep growing that audience. And once, if if people did leave t- Twitter, which again, I don't think that they will, it's just going to be a nightmare in terms of um, trying to get your audience to move somewhere else. That That's yeah. the biggest thing that is always hard. My, my core audience is on YouTube. I've got, you know, 100,000 plus subscribers, but trying to pull any number of those viewers over to any other platform that I'm creating on is nigh on impossible. And Twitter is kind of the hub from which you like project manage that, that that's the directing, (laughs) you know, you're, you're doing all your middle of the road police signals, whatever that's called, um, trying to get people to go to where you want them to. And if we lost Twitter, that would be a huge blow for any creator, especially in a niche space like this. And honestly, a huge blow because there is no other platform that is robust enough to take on the Twitter refugees. Mastodon Mm -hmm. is arcane. Instagram is a different platform. No one's going mm-hmm. back to Facebook. Uh, Google Plus is long since dead and buried. And like, what else? I'm is- actually interested to see if some people do go back to Facebook. That would be really <laughs> fascinating. I think some you know, people are going to go back to Tumblr because of this. Yes. And it, I, I don't think it's outside the realm of possibility that people would go back to Facebook, but I don't think that Facebook is currently set up to do that well, to handle that well. Yeah, Facebook. <laughs> You know, just by their very structure, every social media platform uh, is built for different things, right? Twitter is one that is very low effort to quote unquote content create for or have discussion on, right? People on TikTok, generally speaking, I don't think, you know, I'm not a TikTok aficionado, um, but from what I've observed, mainly from my wife's habits of uh, scrolling through TikTok, you're uh, largely not opening the the comments at all. There's no real discussion happening on TikTok. And if it is, it's just to abuse the person who commented before you for having the wrong opinion. Um, whether as Twitter is much lower effort to create content on there because you're just typing it, you don't have to film something or photograph something or, or anything like that. And so it becomes much easier to have discussions rather than... Um, rather than everybody kind of like, you know, just having their own individualized experience. Um, whether as Facebook by its nature, I don't think maybe maybe like Facebook pages or groups could, could fill that space. But even then that's kind of partitioning people off. The thing that I think is putting people off Mastodon, as soon as I looked at it, it was like, choose a server. And I'm like, <laughs> What? Oh. I don't want to. I don't want to be like partitioned off into. Am I not going to see other people's stuff if they're in a different server? Like how? How does this work? It, yeah. Speaking it, like of you said, servers, very Discord. Uh, many mm-hmm. content creators, yep. Dale. Uh, many companies, Ghostfire, have a Discord that's uh, specific to theirs. Even honestly, people who I didn't expect to have Discords have Discord servers. A friend of mine working in the RPG. <laughs> Someone said Borat voice, MySpace. <laughs> <laughs> Must- oh, actually, no, I better not Must- do it, just, just to be safe. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, what was I talking about? Discord. Um, people who I wouldn't expect to be in the sort of Discord community, people who aren't streamers, for example. I think of streamers as having Discords or uh, companies that would have forums have Discords. But like a friend of mine who's just like a writer has a group of uh, people that gather and share their games and you know chat in a discord server and uh i i don't know does someone who knows discord servers better than i do i join a bunch then mute them and never look at them again because i get overwhelmed and and terrified Mm. Mm. by the number of like social possibilities there it makes me uncomfortable someone who knows discord a little bit better than me which 
given Dale, you <laughs> you have a Discord server. <laughs> tell tell me the wisdom. Let uh, me tell you a thing about my Discord server, James. Yeah. Um, it's not actually my Discord server. I said uh-huh. I was going to make a Discord server, got overwhelmed and stressed out about it. Two years later, people were like, hey, whatever happened to that Discord server you were going to make? And I said, I never got, I never did it because it, I got scared. And so then <laughs> two of my community members, Locon and Shadow, uh, got together and made the Discord server. So it's not actually mine. It's it's a, a fan server that I am in because I was scared of making it myself. So I also don't understand how Discord Discord works. Great. Yeah, Discord, <laughs> Dis- Discord moves at its own pace, right? Because Discord, like each uh, tech server that you're in, and I don't know, I very famously in the Ghostfire Gaming Discord don't know how it works. You know, I went through and pinned a bunch of uh, articles at one point to the blog so that people could find them easily enough and uh, ended up with like you'd scroll back down to the bottom of that chat and it was just like a whole page of Ben Byrne has pinned this and that and that and that. And I was like, whoa, what have I done here? Okay. Very frequently I will accidentally almost reorder the Discord uh, channels in the server because I've got moderation uh, capability there. And if I just click for a little too long uh, when I'm trying to enter a server, I might drag it to another position. Um, That being said, my understanding of Discord is that, you know, it moves at its own pace because it's just a chat log, right? It's not like even Facebook or even Twitter where that it's easy to scroll up and access the conversation after it happened on something like Facebook or Twitter or a forum uh, back in the the ye olden times, um, it's very difficult unless you're using the search function, I suppose, um, to find previous conversations on Discord because they're just kind of lost to the the script of that particular server for all time. Yeah, well, the thing that I thought was so exciting about Discord um, before I got scared of it was <laughs> that the structure of it is so reminiscent of old school, like, MUDs, right? Like, <laughs> like the MUD style, like, yeah, there's different rooms, but it's basically just a, a top-down chat. And if you're there for the thing while it's happening, then it's, you know, it, it replicates this um, very... I, uh, how deep do I get into this? I think the internet, <laughs> I did a lecture at some point that was talking about how the internet um, in many ways replicates sort of an oral uh, culture in that it is it is kind of both ephemeral and archi- archival at the same time. Like you have this mm. archive, but you also kind of have to be there because once it's gone, it's kind of gone. Like yeah. it is saved, but how are you going to find it? How are you going to get mm-hmm. to it? Um which is fascinating. It's fascinating to me. I love it. Rike Madolphus in uh, chat did make the point. The only thing I see off here is the word has. Twitter has. Um, Twitter is still in a cleanup phase after switching owners. Give the people working there a chance to rewire the thing. And that is a good point that this is not uh, the final version of Twitter. This is all pure speculation. Uh, but I, I'm going to allow myself a little doom and glooming because right now it's it's looking a bit of a mess. It's not. It, I'm sure that the people working there are very competent and they'll pull it together. And like the I half said, half that are left. Yeah, I don't think that it's going to collapse. I think it would take a lot to make it collapse. But um, it's not a great place to start off from having I mean, half your he- staff gone and having the uh, owner <laughs> bartering live with the <laughs> horror writers and fake cartoon cats. I think eventually, like, if you just, uh, once everybody's impersonated, uh, I don't know what that accent was, impersonated Elon uh, at least once. Um, uh, Although, very funnily, I saw Crit Crab trying to get himself banned by impersonating Elon and it just didn't happen for him. I'm not sure why. Um, I'm not sure if that's, like, a compliment that Elon's like, nah, I like you, Crit Crab, you can stay, or whether that's an insult because he flew too beneath the radar. Yeah. but, uh, yeah, just very quickly, uh, Dale, do you use any alternative social media platforms where people might find you apart from <laughs> face, uh, uh, YouTube? This is where I start to regret that I have a different <laughs> tag on everything. I am. I'm mm. on Instagram. I'm on YouTube. I'm on, I mean, I technically am on Facebook as well. Uh, I'm on Twitch. Basically, type in a social media platform and follow it with Dale Kingsmill. That's the best way to find me. <laughs> Uh, James Hake, what about you? Well, I'm actually thinking of starting up a mailing list. Um, I'm going okay. really old school, back to email. MT Black, uh, a D&D creator on the DMs Guild, uh, part of the Australian gaming community, lovely guy. Uh, yeah, he's a great guy. He, he has a mailing list of his own, and I think it might be a very smart idea. Uh, 
less applicable to me since I'm with Ghostfire. Uh, I'm not a, you know, I'm not a singer songwriter, whatever, a writer publisher, not a writer publisher anymore. I'm just a writer. I have a publisher. <laughs> uh, so it, it's less imperative that people know exactly where I am at all times. Um, but if, if Twitter does go down, uh, or it looks like it's going to go down, I'm probably going to start posting, Hey, sign up for my mailing list, keep track of, of where I'm going to go write things. Maybe I'll start a blog, who knows? But if I have a mailing list, uh, I don't need to know right now where I'm going to go. Uh, I, I will send an email once I know where I'm going to go. Uh, Sean Merwin. Yeah. I, the funny thing is I, before I became a freelancer, I worked at a digital marketing company that handled <laughs> mostly email lists. And as James said, uh, you know, if you are trying to sell to a community, email is the best way to go. Without a doubt, sure. it has been proven time and time again by many people. Uh, but g- making that email list a thing, getting the emails in that list, that's the hard part. So all mm-hmm. of the stuff we've been talking about is sort of marketing versus communication versus, you know, s- specific types of sales interactions or personal interactions. And email me. Uh, Sean at ghostfiregaming.com. I'll give it out. I'm fine. Uh, if you have, if you have something right. cool and important to say, I would love to hear it. Uh, and maybe we'll talk about this a little bit later too. Yeah. Okay. All right. All yeah. right. I can see you're keen for that conversation. So we'll start moving on. Uh, I am the Ben Burn on uh, Instagram is the other one that I use predominantly apart from Twitter. Um, uh, so thanks, Maddie P for the advice. I changed them all to be the one thing. So people can just Google the Ben Burn and it's all one word. Maddie P, I'll never take that advice. I'll die this <laughs> Maddie way. Maddie P didn't take this his own advice. Hill. Like, to be fair. I have like um, four uh, emails from Maddie P like languishing in my email inbox. And I keep being like, I won't open it till I'm ready to respond till I have time to actually look and carefully and mindfully consider what he wants to tell me. And so it means I never open them because I have no care and no mind. Uh, so I'll get well, to was, you, Maddie. He was in the Twitch chat, so I don't know if he's still there, but maybe no, he, no. He, can, he can just. Ben, I think you'll find that the very real Elon Musk and Garfield were in the Twitch chat. Oh, gotcha. Okay. <laughs> they had ticks next to their names, Ben. <laughs> Sorry, I didn't say I didn't notice that. Well, so oh, oh, so um so uh royalty here to have Elon himself uh, appear in our Twitch chat. Uh, just a quick little bit of just kind of headlining news to slam through. Honor among thieves. I know you were looking forward to seeing it on March third with your popcorn and your D twenties for some reason and your cosplay hat, but you now have to wait. Until March 31st, the movie has been delayed by a Mm. month. Not a huge delay. Uh, No real reason was given, but it seems that it's probably just moving into a more advantageous spot for that that. specific movie. Two two of the players couldn't make it that week and they had to (laughs) go to next month. It was switched with another movie. Did you know that? Oh, what was the other movie? What movie was it switched with? Scream 6. Oh, (laughs) wait, wait, they're doing a sixth one. That's yeah, what they I got to warm up, warm up the audience for D and D with Scream Six. <laughs> it's true. Tells you something about the relative question. prestige of the Dungeons and Dragons movie that it gets yeah. sort of trumped by Scream Six. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Who knows? Sense, maybe the new time slot's a better one. When <laughs> I when I saw that they were moving it by not even quite a month, I was like, "That's not enough time to to really add." You know, you know, if it was like more post-production stuff, that doesn't seem like enough time. But it makes sense if they have to swap it with Scream Six. <laughs> Is Cindy in this one? I Is Gail no Weathers there? She's my favorite. <laughs> Uh, Dale, this is a tabletop RPG podcast. We're not talking about Scream 6 here. Didn't you hear James before? I'm so um, sorry. Don't bring me into this, Ben off topic. Um, I'm going to uh, remember also... this when you bring up The Witcher, Ben. <laughs> hey, that's relevant for reasons. Uh, there is also a prequel novel, uh, feast, uh, sorry, prequel graphic novel, I should, I should clarify. Uh, the Feast of the Moon. I kind of missed this uh, in previous weeks, but if you're jumping on those pre- prequel novels that were being written that we mentioned a couple of weeks back. Uh, maybe this might interest you as well. It, it's it's focused on uh, Chris Pine's character, Edgen, kind of saving a town folk from bandits. That, that sounds like a D&D adventure for sure. Check it out. Anyway, um, uh, speaking of things that you should check out, I also just wanted to give a quick shout out uh, to Ben Riggs. 
who famous now uh, Dungeons and Dragons historian who wrote Slaying the Dragon, which was a book that came out just this year um, about, uh, I believe the tagline is the unwritten history or the secret history of Dungeons and Dragons. Um, He posted an article recently about the Martin map, which I just thought was fascinating. Um, I do have a link here, actually. Uh, No, I closed Discord, so I'm going to have to open that again. I'll post a link to this in the chat in just a moment um, to the article to have a read yourself. But I'm just kind of curious, like, Sean, would you know what I meant by Martin map before explaining what it is? I Like, is it that much of a relic? It, it is a relic. I had never heard it by that name. Uh, do you want me to explain? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Go ahead. So this Martin map was the original map, the first map ever made of the Forgotten Realms made by Ed Greenwood. And he made it, and it was at the TSR offices. And when one of the employees was let go, the map remained in his cubicle. And then TSR began to go under, and there were rumors that they were going to be bought, and finally they were. And this map still sat there. And luckily, a woman named Julia Martin saw this Mm. map and said, maybe we should do this. Maybe we should save this. Now, tons and tons of material was just dumped in the trash, but she saved this one map. Uh, the original Forgotten Realms, which then made its way to Seattle when Wizards of the Coast bought it. And then it finally made its way to the Game Hole, which is a gaming room above a uh, restaurant owned by Alex Kammer, who is the principal behind Game Hole Con in Madison, Wisconsin. So now it is, you know, it is under plexiglass and it's up on the roof above his gaming table, the gaming table which Monty Cook used when he was at TSR in uh, in Wisconsin. And the game hole is just, it's the largest collection of RPG D&D material imaginable. Uh, I've seen it. I think James has probably seen it. Uh, and it's it's impressive. So the game the hole map, is a fascinating location. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So this map made its way through these various stages to a collector who is putting it in plexiglass and making sure that it's safe. But just the map itself shows a great history of games and how games mm. are made because this map is a hand sketched map, but the, uh, the Moonshade Isles was not originally part of the Forgotten Realms, but when they wanted to make novels, they put this Moonshade Isles in the Forgotten Realms. So on the map itself, they cut out a picture of the Moonshade Isles and taped it to where it belongs on the Forgotten Realms map. So there's this taped extra thing on the map that's covering or half covering other stuff that used to be there. And that's how games are made, right? With tape Mm -hmm. and with hand-drawn maps. And so just to see that this Forgotten Realms that has spawned movies and, and books and novels and games and the imagination of millions of people, you know, started with this map that was almost just left and discarded uh, at TSR. It's got a real, like just reading uh, Ben Riggs' article, it has a real mythical quality to it. It feels almost like a real D&D artifact, you know, that's been lost to, like like the one ring, it's been lost to time. Like, by uh, definitionally, it's an artifact. That is that is an artifact, that thing. And the naming of it. I love I love that it just seemed, like, along the way, like so many people are involved in this, but the, the naming of it becoming the Martin map is so... It, it really adds to that mythical quality. It's like, <laughs> yeah, but like I'm, I'm looking for a Forgotten Realms map, but, you know, the Martin map. <laughs> like, yes. <laughs> uh, it, it's like how they name an archaeological dig, right, after the like town in Germany or wherever where they dug up this sky disk. It's the Nebra sky disk because it was found in Nebra. It's, like, it's the Martin <laughs> map because it was found by Martin. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I believe that Alex paid... The same amount for the map that Wizards of the Coast paid Ed Greenwood for use of the Forgotten Realms. Um, and mm. it's only a four-digit figure. Mm. Um, yeah. That's, it's not enough <laughs> for, for intellectual property. It might be enough for, for the map. <laughs> yes. 
I see a, a hyphen hedgehog saying Indiana Jones and the Raiders of the Martin map, which is funny, <laughs> but like legitimately a good idea for a D&D adventure. You know, it's like before you yeah. can even go find the treasure, you have to find the map that says where the treasure is. And that is itself there, is an artifact. Like a magic item artifact that is a map in D&D. Like, a, like you know how there are the, the magic items that are in every iteration of D&D. There has mm. to be a map version. Add one now. So. Wizards, listen to me. Listen, to me. you have to listen, okay? All right? D&D needs a map magic item. It's important. Sean, well, you and I should get Alex Cameron on the horn and say, like, can we write a uh, heist of the game hall search for the Martin map? <laughs> oh, my and, gosh. Like, like as, as our <gasps> Ghostfire free though. offering for game hall yes. 2023. Like, let's I just think do that. that. I think that has <laughs> to happen. I think that has to happen. Um, well, speaking of things that have to happen, uh, we need to move on to the next topic because I can see Sean's chomping at the bit to discuss uh, an email. Podcast at ghostfiregaming.com is the email address if you want to email the podcast and ask us a question or you can email Sean, Sean at ghostfiregaming.com while he's handing that out. Uh, and maybe he can bring an email to the podcast. Uh, this one comes in from Ken, uh, who is basically asking us to elaborate on, if you haven't seen it uh, on our YouTube channel, we uploaded a filmed version. Man, that makes me sound old when I say it that way. A filmed version, a filmography uh, of our PAX panel where we discussed a little bit about uh, what it looks like inside the tabletop RPG industry uh, as a publisher, mm-hmm. um, as an independent creator. Uh, if you are someone who is writing adventures, or maybe you're an artist or maybe you're a cartographer. Uh, Speaking of map making, see, the segue worked. Um, And Ken basically wanted us to just elaborate a little bit more, particularly when it came to independent authors slash creators approaching a publishing company uh, and what is kind of, what is that process? What is the lead time uh, from like pitching a project all the way to project being released Um, and I'm going to let Sean go ahead in a moment. My take on this is that it it seems like there's a bit of a misconception what a tabletop RPG publisher is by compared to like a, a typical book publisher or a game, video game publisher. Um, but Sean, you you seem like you have things that you want to say uh, about this topic specifically. I don't know. You you choose where to start. Well, I, I could start in a hundred places, but I think it's important to realize the scale and the scope of different publishers. Mm-hmm. Um, someone like Ghostfire Gaming, we are still, you know, how old are we? Three, four years old? Three, um, yeah, three and a bit. But but we are constantly updating our process. And we had a meeting this morning about our new process, yeah. which now <laughs> is morning. approaching, yes, which is now approaching almost uh, two-year lead time from the ideation of a project to its completion. So two years, but that's a publisher that has to go through a proof of concept and has to go through uh, art and has to go through products and has to go through all of those things that take an immense amount of coordination. So we might finish a manuscript and a year and a half later, we will publish that. Not all publishers work that way. Some publishers are digital only, and they can put together a product much more quickly. But regardless of who you're approaching as an independent creator who's looking to get your stuff published, uh, know who you are and what you do, and know what the people you're approaching do. That way you can avoid a lot of wasted time by coming to Ghostfire with this idea for this small project, which we will not be able to do. Um, Now, there may be ways that we could publish it in blog form or in in other ways. So I'm not saying don't approach big companies if they have these other ways, because we're not going to take a thousand page product and make minis for it and make maps for it or a thousand pages, a thousand word product. Uh, but that's something not that we can do might do. a thousand pages either, though. That's true. If you have a thousand pages, you also We're getting close. Need, need to go somewhere else. <laughs> but so that's why you should say you were coming to Ghostfire with something. Understand, look at our Kickstarters, look at our webpage, look at the project that, that we've already worked on and know who we are 
so that when you approach us and you know who you are, we can see if there is a connection business-wise or spiritually right away. Uh, so many times I've gotten pitches for things that are great, but I am in no place to to do them in any way, shape, or form. Uh, so know that. And also, this goes back to our um, social media discussion. It's be on social media, but be off social media. Because if you're not on social media, it's hard for, for you to get your pitch to the people you need to. You need to know where to find them. You need to know all that information that I talked about just a second ago. But unless you have a good product to show them, it's not going to matter. So you have to get offline and you have to put your butt in the seat and you have to do the work of creating. And you cannot do that when you're checking Twitter every every 10 minutes or whatever social media that you're using. Uh, you need to do the work. I've spent the last 48 hours going through a 180 page manuscript. I was not checking Twitter a lot. Uh, that's the kind of work that you need to put in to make sure that the product that you are going to pitch someone is the product that you should be proud of and want to get out there. I'm going to step off my soapbox now. <laughs> no, I think I think that's incredibly insightful and and sort of hints at what I was uh, saying a moment ago, which is I think that the misconception for publishers of our size of, I assume, MCDM, Cobalt Press, you know, any uh, even Paizo, any of those kind of third-party publishers for, for 5e particularly, um, is that we already, you know, like you said, the lead time's two, two years and, and we've got projects kind of moving. I think people think of tabletop RPG companies or, or publishers specifically and think of that word publisher in terms of we will take your work and we will publish it for you. Whereas I think what we're actually kind of closer to is like a video game studio that's actually creating the game and then publishing it ourselves, you know, as opposed to, you know, we are the Bioware as opposed to the EA or the, you know, or, you know, maybe we're closer to a CG, CD Projekt Red. There's your Witcher watch for you um, just because they publish their own games. So, um, Benjamin, yeah. this <laughs> is a and d <laughs> podcast. <laughs> I was making a D&D &D relevant uh <laughs> Uh, discussion uh, point. Anyway, uh, James Dale, anything you want to add to that? Discussion? I have zero insights on this. This isn't what I do. This is James. Please take it away. I just spoke to a lot of people at Big Bad Con about this exact sort of thing. If we're talking about getting your idea in front of a publisher, what Sean said is exactly the right thing to do, right? Know who you are, know what they publish, make sure you're pitching to the people who publish the sort of stuff that you want to get published. That's great. Um, generally, however, I would say that most publishers do not accept cold calls. They don't mm. uh, very rarely, unless they have on their website explicitly stated, we have an open call right now. And to be perfectly honest, I haven't seen a lot of open calls around lately. It seems as though most uh, publishers or studios or whatever they are uh, have a stable of writers they like to work with. And they're operating at the level of productivity that they want to be. And there's no real need for brand new writers, um, which is not to say don't write, but you'll need to find a way to write that develops your skills and creates a body of work that is not reliant upon a publisher. This actually dovetails very uh, interestingly with our Twitter discussion earlier, because whenever I suggest to people, hey, you should start doing some work. You should publish on Drive Through RPG. You should publish on DMs Guild. You should write what you like and seek feedback from your peers and friends and fellow writers about how good it is and where you can improve and about what worked and what didn't work and, you know, iterate, stuff like that. That's all very good. But you need a way to solicit the opinions of other people. And you can only really get so far with your group of friends if they're you know, not in the tabletop industry because your network will remain at the size of your, your friend group. Twitter, for me, was an incredible place in 2015 for me to reach a larger audience of people who cared a lot about D&D. And I put out a really huge amount of work because I was editing a weekly publication at that time. And I was writing blog posts for Cobalt Press and I was publishing on the DMs Guild. And I was just doing so much stuff, just way too much stuff, uh, which is a habit I've never really been able to break. 
But what that did is it got my stuff in front of people's eyes all the time um, because I was promoting it constantly on Twitter. And sometimes my friends who were uh, professionals in that field would retweet it because they thought it was cool. They read it. They liked it. They wanted other people to see it. And if you're on Twitter right now, which is an era of sort of uncertain Mm. stability, you may not find such a readily receptive community. You may need to find an alternative method, you know, stick stick with Twitter. Like like we're saying here, it probably won't fall apart tomorrow. It might not even fall apart at all. But you should think about staking your claim in a variety of different places, including conventions in real life, as loath as I am to say it, given that COVID is still a pandemic in our world. Um finding ways to get the stuff that you're doing in front of people and be a little bit be a little bit aggressive but have some social tact. That's a very fine line to walk. Um, it's a lot easier on social media where you can just kind of go I am throwing this into the void and go take a look at it if you'd like. Uh, whereas in real life, you often have to go up to someone and say, Hey, I'd really like your opinion on this thing. Would you please tell me what you think of it? Uh, this is an awkward social <laughs> interaction. Uh, I mean, I think, uh, I think be aggressive, but have some tact is you're right. It's a fine line to walk, but, but yeah. a, an alternative way to t- think about it is that particularly at conventions, my experience has only ever been, that people are wonderful and friendly and want to talk to lots of different people. That's why they're at a convention. So being aggressive doesn't mean like throw it at them from across the convention and hope it hits them in the back of the head. Uh, Be aggressive means just don't be afraid to walk up and and introduce yourself. Yeah, Yeah. exactly. Be confident, be outgoing. And if you're not those things in real life. be normal about it. (laughs) Yeah, don't slap them across the face with the book and then, you know, aggressive, maybe not the best word there. Anyway, sorry, James, go ahead. Well, all all this to say, if you are a a wonderful nerd person who has no social skills, which I, I count myself amongst at some times, uh, there will be a learning period of knowing how to interact with people who you want to like your stuff. And you'll, you'll, there's no way to teach it, but for you to have a lot of awkward social interactions before you reach mm. a point where you had stop having them. Right. Or we have this social lubricant, I'm going to call it not alcohol, but the social lubricant we gamers have is called games. Mm. So volunteer to run games that way it's awkward, but you're doing what you love, which is running games for people. And if you go to a three day convention again, COVID, you know, notwithstanding mask up, do, do the, do the right thing, but run one game each day. And you have five players at your table each day say, Hey, I'm running this game. I also have this thing up on the DMs guild. If you're interested you know, let me know. And then you're dealing with people at the convention who are thanking you for running games, not just your players, but the people who run the convention, who often mm-hmm. have connections to other people who might be publishers or who might be looking for someone to write a blog post for their company or for a website or for those sorts of things. So this we love games. We love gaming. Let that be the thing that drives you forward rather than you know, trying to do other things that aren't in your comfort zone. Uh, it's hard to overstate how powerful being reliable is. Yeah. Um, if you're a person who, you know, you're not going to change the world with a magnum opus, but if you are able to write a 1000 word blog post every week and deliver it, and it is on a topic that the company wants to publish and that their aud- audience likes to read, we will fall in love with you. Um, there is no better way to prove to a company that you are a good writer than, and it's not about the quality of your writing. Quality of writing is truly second, I think, to, or third even to reliable, pleasant to work with. Um, You know, be a good writer, write well. But if you suck to work with and you never hit a deadline, you're never going to get any work ever. That, that's funny because that's the same advice I give people who want to be like game masters for hire is like the service that you are selling is not your skill as a game master. There's plenty of very good game masters out there. The service you are selling is that when the group want to play D&D, they get to play D&D no matter what. You know, there's no uh, scheduling conflicts. Um, and yeah, uh, just also backing up what Sean said, run, running games at conventions was kind of how I managed to get introduced to a lot of uh, different people that kind of, you know, led to 
the position I'm very fortunately uh, in now. I'm not saying that that's like you can repeat that success if you follow these three easy steps. Um, but even just playing at tables as well uh, is great for uh, getting introduced to people because I remember one convention I was really nervous. There was a, a dude who was cosplaying and I was really nervous about walking up and saying hi to him, but it had helped because I'd played uh, Call of Cthulhu with him the day before. And so I was like, oh, Grant, uh, I remembered him, walked up and I said, I love your Geralt of Rivia cosplay. Bam, bam, got two in, and that's going to be the episode for this week. Um, <laughs> you I'm not kidding, to that's be a true arrested. story. <laughs> um, uh, I don't know if Grant listens to this, but I remember your cosplay. It was awesome. Uh, he has an Instagram where he does leatherworking and a YouTube channel as well. I couldn't tell you what they were. Anyway, uh, this has been the Eldritch Lawcast. Uh, we will be back next week. Our Twitter handles, if the website still exists, are just below our names. Uh, if you want to keep the conversation going over there uh, or spread the word of the Eldritch Lawcast because we are... Uh, only spreading it via word of mouth. We don't do any advertising or anything behind this uh, podcast. So <laughs> let other people know uh, that we exist. I'm sorry, James uh, is just fighting with the I'm focus. I'm so on blurry. It's very funny. <laughs> There's nothing I can do about this. Just get in there, blur up. This is your and fate now. Bring it back. There we go. There we go. A victory to Excellent. end the day. Trapped in, in the ghost realm for a minute there. Ethereal and foggy. <laughs> I'm glad we've managed uh, to free you. Uh, my name's been Ben Byrne, here with Dale Kingsmill, Sean Merwin, and a recently freed from the ghost realm, James Hake, and we will catch you next week. Thank you, uh... Twitch chat. Thank you. I think uh, came re sorry recame uh, Apophilus for Adophilus. Sorry, man. I'm just um, <laughs> thanks for the Pax Oz crew. Uh, I saw Dread in there. I saw Luna. I'm sure there were a couple of others. So thanks for coming and hanging out. Uh, Matt uh, disguises Elon Musk apparently.